0: I am as frightened as uh, my non Asian neighbors, uh, non Asian American neighbors uh, um, as well um, of of the disease and we need to unite together uh, to fight it um, and not uh, scapegoat um, a uh, a minority of color uh, for this illness. Uh, As your previous speaker said, um, this pandemic. It uh, goes beyond borders, uh, has no uh, uh, racial exclusivity uh, to it. Um, people of all races, unfortunately, um, are coming down with it. And if you think only people of Chinese descent ha- have it or may have it, um, then you uh, miss the uh, well, white lawyer uh, from Miami uh, who came to, who flew to New York. Um, and was infected. Well, we want to
1: thank you so much, uh, Elizabeth Oyang, for joining us, former president of OCA New York, advocate for victims of hate crimes and fair media representation of Asian Americans. And that does it for our broadcast. I want to thank the incredibly dedicated team of Democracy Now!, most of whom are working from their homes in self-isolation. This is a very difficult time, um, but they are every day devoted to producing this stellar newscast,
0: Democracy Now! Thank you to them all.
2: KBOO Portland
3: You're listening to KBOO Portland. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, KBOO will be sticking to our regularly scheduled programming as much as possible, but there are some limitations that we're working with, so we appreciate your understanding and support. We are committed to keeping our staff, volunteers, and programmers safe and healthy, so we are transitioning to producing programs remotely. For updates on KBOO's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, visit our website at kboo.fm slash COVID-19. That's kboo.fm slash c-o-v-i-d-19.
4: Welcome to The Food Show. I'm Emily Becker. It's a beautiful, sunny week, the cherry trees are blossoming, and we're all stuck at home trying to slow the spread of COVID-19. Our lives are disrupted, and most things are closed, including restaurants, bars, and the KBOOS studio. Given these strange circumstances, I thought it would be a good time to talk to people about strategies to address community food security and some tips on gardening and cooking while you're stuck at home. I want to thank Roselle Medina and Peter Schmitz for providing me with recording and editing equipment. This is my first time making a show at home and fingers crossed it'll be the last, but I couldn't have done it without their support. On this episode, I talked to Holly Hutchison about community supported agriculture Marisha Auerbach about what to do in the garden while you're quarantined and starting perennial food forests to get us through a future crisis. And I spoke with bookstore owner Christine Longmuir about cooking your way through these strange times and our cookbook club. Here's the show. I'm here with Holly Hutchison of the Portland Area Community Supported Agriculture Coalition. Yeah. And we're gonna it's ta- easier to say Paxac. Paxac. <laughs> and we're going to talk a little bit about CSA and what that is and why it's important and why right now more than ever um, it's important to know where your food comes from and shorten those um, chains between you and where you get your food.
3: Hi Holly. Hello Emily, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for being here. Um, So tell us about PACSAC. PACSAC has been around our area for basically since the 1990s, the mid-1990s. It was started by um, four farms that are local and are regional who all decided to start farming using the CSA uh, model. So they got together and said, we're all doing the same thing, let's do it together. And since then that has grown to about 65 farms this year and they're all in our, um, in the greater uh, Pacific Northwest region. So many are here in the Portland area, but we also have farms that are in Washington and in Eugene and uh, yeah, all over the state. Some people might not know, what is, what is community-supported agriculture? What does CSA mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So CSA is a model of, um, of agriculture where the community participates in uh, not only the bounty of the harvest, but also a little bit of the risk. So farmers have to plan their seasons uh, very early on. You know, they order their seeds in December and January, they do their starts in January. So they need to know how much they're going to plant uh, when they do that. And when you um, buy your vegetables at a grocery store, all of the thought has already gone into that. So in CSA, farmers uh, sign up subscribers and you pay when you sign up for the vegetables for the entire season. And that allows the farmer to not only plant their seeds, but build out the infrastructure. It gives them the capital they need because the farmers don't, get the capital from, they don't make the sales until you know July or August, but they spend the money in February when they're uh, laying down their drip tape and um, you know building up their infrastructure. So the farmers really need the money at a different time than when the money comes in. So CSA allows them to do that. It gives them um, the number of people they're going to grow food for. It gives them the capital they need to not go into debt. And it really helps them plan their, their farm more efficiently.
4: When did this whole idea start? Is
3: it something that has always existed? or Well, you know, there, there have been agricultural cooperatives since, you know, the beginning of time, but this whole idea of the modern CSA really took root um, simultaneously in a few different places. Uh, the, the most common one that people cite is in Japan. Um, but it turns out here in the South, we had a, a very um, prominent... Uh, farmer and a professor named uh, Dr. Watley, who came up with the idea of the community participating in the planning of the farm. And so um, really, it grew out of the 1950s, uh, the concepts that were formed in the 1950s, to um, what it is today. So there are lots of things that maybe feel a little bit like a CSA that
4: I've heard about, and things where, like, You can, at the grocery store, you can go online and like put a bunch of vegetables in a box and then have it delivered
3: to you. (laughs) And like, there's kind of other things that kind of feel like that, but those aren't a CSA. One really important thing to understand about our food system today is that um, we have a very large supply chain. And one of the fundamentals for a CSA is It's a direct bond, a direct relationship. We call it a partner farmer tandem. So it's a relationship between the subscriber and the farmer directly. There are no middlemen. If you look at USDA data on um, the food dollars you spend at the grocery store, um, really the farmers get less than 10% of that. And the rest goes to the overhead for the the, uh, grocery store the insurance, the transportation of the food—you um, know—the the more, the longer the supply chain is, the more expensive it becomes. Mm-hmm. So, one of the amazing things about CSA is 100% of your food dollar goes directly to the farmer. So, it's a much more efficient way for them to do business, and you get to know your farmer. Like you know the person who is pulling the food out of the ground for you. <laughs> you know, you can take your kids to their farm, and so. That is, um, you know, a lot of uh, recently, a lot of companies have come up with other vegetable subscription programs, and they market them as CSA-like or um, you know, box of vegetables. Mm-hmm. But if you look carefully at their model, um, most of these are not local vegetables, and so they do nothing toward reducing your carbon footprint and reducing the the um, quality of the vegetables, right? So they, they do nothing towards uh, reducing your carbon footprint of the food that you eat. Um, and then vegetables that are grown and shipped from far away are usually grown for durability and for uh, looks, mm-hmm. not for flavor and nutrition. And you can't get those vegetables through subscription services. If you want to buy uh, vegetables from a subscription company, it is important that you know how that reflects on the food system. So if you're looking for vegetables that are nutritious and um, have been grown locally and have stayed in the ground to ripen, you're really looking at somebody who's less than 30 miles from you. You know, CSA farmers will harvest the vegetables uh, the day of or the day before you get them, and there's no way to compare the taste. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about food waste in our food system, which is a terrible problem, but, CSA farmers are able to minimize their waste because they plan their crops very efficiently. They don't have to find other outlets. They don't lose 50% of their crops to not being gradable, not being able to sell them in the a grocery store because mm-hmm. they're not selling them in the a grocery store. So 100% of what they harvest goes directly to the consumer. There's no waste. So
4: just to like illustrate it a little more clearly, I'm a farmer mm-hmm. and I'm gonna grow uh, greens, Mixed greens Mm -hmm. for a grocery store. Mm -hmm. I plant all my greens, and then I cut them when they're ready, and I sell what I can to the grocery store. And then who knows how much of that gets wasted, (laughs) how much of it actually goes home with people. But then I have all this, like, probably left over, because I had to plant without knowing how much I'd actually be able to sell. But if I have a a community of subscribers to my farm who are there, I know I'm going to grow for... 30 families and they're all gonna get about two pounds of greens a week. That seems like a lot, Exactly, that's a lot. So then I am able to prepare and I can actually plant, forecast
3: out how much I need to grow and at what time of year. And that's exactly what the CSA farmers do. They know which crops need to be harvested in which months, how many people they're going to be feeding, how many crops they need, and they plant them according to that plan. And the problem with grocery store sales is you plant a harvest, let's just say beets. Everybody loves beets, right? You plant mm-hmm. your beets and you uh, you want to sell them to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And for the grocery store to accept them, they have a grading procedure. It has to have you know, no um, insect holes in the leaves. It has to have a certain size. It has to be a certain shape. It can't have two little knobs coming out of the end. Um, they won't accept it. And so a lot of the grocery store product, uh, before it even gets to the grocery store, ends up sitting in the field. The farmers Mm -hmm. can't even sell it. One of the great things about CSA is the people who who subscribe to CSA tend to be a little more reasonable about their food. They don't have an expectation that a beet is gonna be perfectly round. And so the CSA farmer is able to um, take more of their, a higher amount of their yield and distribute it to their customers
4: i also wonder i feel like with grocery stores even a small store you have to be able to guarantee a certain quantity of something right to sell mm-hmm. it to them mm-hmm. so like even if you are capable of growing those perfect beets you might not be able to grow enough to supply to a large chain grocery store mm-hmm. and, and i don't and most of the grocery stores that i'm familiar with don't necessarily have contracts with like for you know beets for this week with this
3: farm, beets for this week with that farm. Very, they're not, they do. No, yeah, it's like a lot right. of work on their part that they're not willing to put in. No, they typically contract with very large commercial farms that um, they do what we call monocropping. They'll grow very much uh, one crop and it won't be grown using sustainable procedures, mm-hmm. sustainable techniques, because they have to grow it and harvest it in a much more efficient way. And when you talk about CSA farmers, they tend to be um, very small scale, very regeneratively uh, oriented, and so um, we call it intensive farming methods. And it really is intensive. Like they don't spray, they don't use pesticides or herbicides. They they tend not to use a lot of amendments to their soil. Instead, they use processes like um, cover crops and crop rotation. So. Uh, It's a more intensive way of farming, but it's much more healthy for the soil, and it's much more healthy for the crops Um, Something
4: that I'm always interested in um, on the show is I talk a lot about labor And so I know that not necessarily you might treat the soil and the land really well But that doesn't necessarily mean you're treating um, the people who work it very well including yourself as a farmer, so I know you know, a lot of intensive agricultural methods, you still end up with some of the same exploitation. It might just be the farmer doing it to themselves as opposed to a lot of farm workers. But is there
3: any like movement to try to alleviate some of that um, pressure on the farmer? That's an excellent question, and you are right. Self-exploitation is a problem for farmers. Um, a lot of people go into farming because they really love uh, doing the work and they really wanna provide the best vegetables they can for their community. Uh, Unfortunately, there's not a high margin in it. And so a lot of times they have to work a second job or they have to marry to someone who works a job. Uh, They're underinsured and they spend way more hours than are naturally healthy, Mm -hmm. physically healthy. So it is a problem. Um, A lot of people don't understand that. You know, it's it's well known in the farming community, but it's not well known outside of that. So um, there's no movement that I know of, unfortunately, but we're looking for solutions. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, I imagine maybe a solution would be if more farmers were able to have more guaranteed sources of income, such as through a CSA program, but then also have people be willing to pay a premium to support them and to support that kind of local food chain um, and all the workers along it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the criticisms CSA usually gets is that it's too expensive. You know, it's hard to look at a vegetable contract in March that costs you $700. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of money, for $700. So, um, one thing that PACSAC has done is put together a program where people can pay for CSA shares with their SNAP cards and we also have um, another program called double up food bucks this is from the state the department of human services from the state where we can help the farmer offer their shares at a lower cost for people who do pay with snap cards so um we really have you know it's a wonderful way for people who need more vegetables in their diet but can't necessarily afford the down payment the the initial upfront cost um, you know, it's an excellent way for them to access their vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if, if there's more. Oh, people. so and and you also mentioned about how they have several markets, uh, direct market models that they use, and for many of our farmers, CSA is only one of them. They also sell to restaurants, um, and we're really concerned about this pandemic because all the restaurants are reducing their service or even closing. And so this means they're not going to be buying the vegetables from the farmers. So far, the restaurant sales are down by 40%. So if the farmers can't sell to the restaurants and, um, you know, they haven't filled up their CSA shares yet, then they really are going to be lacking the income they need. Yeah. It it makes it really tight. Yeah.
4: And um, another issue that I've heard brought up is that farmers markets are amazing, but they all usually start... In May-ish, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they are public gatherings of more than 50 people, definitely more than 10 people, and That's so right. their kind of um, viability is also in question about whether we'll have farmers markets this month, next month, in the near future. Yeah,
3: some farmers markets are closing, they're offering different services, they're, it's really still very much up in the air how they're going to handle that. So, yeah, it's a frightening time. For, for farmers, and I really would encourage people to to look at CSAs as an option because it means so much to the farmers. I mean, it really, this season in particular, will make or break some of our local farmers, and it's really an excellent way for you to get your vegetables, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it, they go directly from the farmer's hands
4: to your refrigerator, right? Yeah, if you're concerned with multiple people touching your food and being
3: involved and, and having to go into a grocery store. It's a great yeah. way to do it, yeah, and to avoid all that. Yes.
4: Tell me a little bit about who um, who the farmers are in the Portland area. Little sure. Who are the farmers that we're so, talking about?
3: <laughs> absolutely. So we've got about 55 farmers that are right within our metro region, uh, less than 30 miles from us, and um, 75% of them are women. We have uh, two farms in our coalition now that are BIPOC, run by by uh, people of color, which is wonderful. And um, also they're not just vegetable farmers. I think a lot of people don't realize that CSA is not just vegetables, but you can get meat. We have lots of ranchers and um, even fishers. So you can get CSA for tuna or mixed meats like uh, pork and chicken and lamb. And you can get eggs, so you really can find a farm that has everything you need.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Cool. Um, So how do I go about finding a farm? Like, if I want to get a CSA, how do I do that? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, One place to start, of course, is our PAXAC website. It's uh, portlandcsa.org, and we have a directory on there. Um, There's a little search engine. It's not the best search engine in the world, but there is one, and you can put in some of your attributes, like where do you want to pick up your shares, and what type of um, food do you want do you want protein do you want vegetables Mm -hmm. Um, so you can search there and then a bunch of farms will pop up and you can click through to any of them and sign up directly with the farm another great place to look is the city of portland um, bureau of sustainability and planning bureau of planning and sustainability has a big website that's uh it's a map and so if you need to have a csa where you can pick up close to your place of work or your home you can just scroll to your address and you can see all the farms that offer drop sites very close to where you live so if, if convenience is a factor for you then if you go to that uh map of the city you'll be able to find farms that are local cool is there a way to you know sort
4: or look by you know i'm in this location on this one day a week can i can i do it by the time of day or the the if
3: there's something really specific like that, I always recommend to just shoot an email to info at portlandcsa.org. We have matchmakers on our oh, staff, cool. CSA matchmakers, and so often this is, this is faster and better than just trying to figure out the website, trying to figure out the directory, but if you just email info at portlandcsa.org and say what your qualifications are. like What do you need in a CSA? Do you want a large one, a small one? What's your price range? What area do you want to pick up in? You know, what vegetables do you want? By large and small, you mean like how many people would be fed by?
5: Yes. Oh,
3: that's a great point. So most farms these days offer um, many more options than they used to, because uh, CSA sometimes can be a little bit of a drag. You know, when August comes around and you're on your twentieth bag Mm -hmm. and you're really tired of putting all the time into cooking all those vegetables. they've come up with offering shares that are more customizable, either in size, like feeding many people or feeding few people, or um, even product, some have market shares, where instead of getting a bag of pre-packed vegetables, you can go where they have all the vegetables set out and you pick what you want. Oh, cool. Yeah, and some farmers even have what they call a market card, where you sign up for an account basically and then you go to their stand at the farmer's market and you just pick out what you want and they debit it from your card. Okay. So that's the ultra customizable one. So if you're out of town for a couple weeks in the summer, exactly. then it's not a big deal. Exactly. So yeah, if you plan on traveling a lot, we can help you find a CSA that's more flexible. If you're going to stay home and you're vegetarian and you eat 10 pounds of vegetables a day, we can help you find a farm that supplies <laughs> you know, with that kind of bulk. That's awesome.
4: Um, So an event that I really look forward to every spring is the CSA Share Fair, Um,
3: but I know it's been canceled. That is such a fun event. We have like 40 farmers come, and we were going to have baby goats this year, and we have a cooking demo. Um, Catherine Doimling from Cook With What You Have has a wonderful website and cooking skills for novices and how to break down your CSA bag. So yeah, it's a super fun event, and unfortunately this year we had to cancel our fair. However, um, we're still doing everything online, so you can, um, you know, like I said, go to the website, find your farm there. But if you follow us on Instagram, you know, we've got our farmers linked up there, and um, you know, you can contact us through through Facebook. But um, you know, we were really sad to cancel it because. It is one of their largest direct marketing outlets for the season. It's really the only one in the area for them, and so a lot of farmers make a lot of sales there. So of course, without the share fair, um, we're going to have to, you know, really go online and do the research and find the farms that we like. And,
4: and luckily, everybody's working at home. Not everybody, but <laughs> lots of people are at home right now. You've got high school students who are board, make them do the research (laughs) for you, find the farm
3: that's going to match your family. (laughs) Yeah, that matches your eating style, that matches your family. We have one farm who is only vegan. Mm -hmm. All of everything she uses, her seeds and her amendments, like only vegan. So, I mean, we have another farm that is a uh, Native American farmer, and she grows a lot of first foods, you know, very indigenous. So Mm -hmm. if you really want a different experience about what food was like before we colonized, and brought in all of these different varieties of food, like that would be a wonderful educational experience. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So a lot of young, innovative farmers out there who really just want to take care of our community and feed them the best, nutritious food, and uh, yeah, we need to we need to make sure we support them. Absolutely. Tell us the
4: website again.
3: Yes, it's PortlandCSA.org. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been wonderful.
6: I've got Marisha Auerbach on the line. She is a permaculture expert, and we're going to be talking about food security and growing your own food and food forests. Um, Welcome, Marisha. Thanks. Good to be here. So, I've been thinking a lot lately about community resiliency and food security. Um, you know, spending a lot more time at home as everybody else is, and with all the fear about scarcity at grocery stores. What are your thoughts about gardening and supporting community food security?
5: Well, having a home garden is a wonderful way to have nutrient-rich, fresh food available daily. And personally, I hardly need to go to the grocery store. I grow my own food year-round, and there's lots of stuff available for me to eat right now. It's actually, I never have a need to go to the grocery store because I always have things um, at home, but I tend to go to the grocery store for things I like to have, mostly dairy, since um, in the city it's too hard to raise that yourself. Um, So right now is a really good time to start planning for your garden, um, especially since the effects of this pandemic are expected to last for quite a while. Um, In the meantime, you know, our local farmers have a lot of nutrient-rich, fresh food available, and so it's a really good time to find your closest farmer and to practice eating seasonally and gather some skills for local medicine as well. Awesome. What are you, what are you eating out of your garden right now? Right now I'm eating parsnips and potatoes and uh, kale and collards and mustard greens and lettuce and garlic chives and regular chives and my chickens are laying eggs. Um, I think I already said parsnips. Um, the lovage is coming up, which is a perennial vegetable. Um, I also have some squash still from the winter. Oh, I'm eating stinging nettles, which are coming up out of my garden, and um, really delicious. You need to cook them to remove the sting, but they're nutrient-dense. And then I'm supplementing with um, canned food that I've made from preserving the harvest last summer. I have salsa and tomato sauce, and I have berries in the freezer for making, like, cobblers and stuff. And one of the things that I've been really thankful for right now is that I have both elderberry Mm -hmm. syrup that I made from my yard. um, I have elderberry tincture, and I also have some fire cider. And those three things are some of the best things that we can use to protect us against flu.
6: So um, tell us what fire cider is.
5: Oh, yeah. Fire cider is a mixture of garlic and ginger and onions and I put in some rose tips, and I think there's some citrus in there, and it's um, and cayenne, and it's infused in apple cider vinegar. So I make my own apple cider vinegar when I press cider from the fruit tree across the street, and um, I had all these things available to infuse in my fire cider. So it's really good as a tonic for your bronchioles. Um, anytime you have a sore throat, it's really good for helping alleviate a sore throat. And it's really just all around good for your immune system. It kind of like burns out whatever you've got in there.
6: That's really incredible that you have that much going on. I was very proud because I have uh, a couple like arugula plants and some radishes that have been overwintering because I forgot about them and they're just hanging out. And I've been snacking on them. But that's and impressive it. what you have.
5: Well, it's a practice um, and I find it delightful to eat out of the garden year round. It's really nutritious right now. I'm really glad that nobody's touching my food but me. And um, it's been quite a number of years to get to this point, but now I'm really glad to offer it in a monthly workshop series from People's Food Co-op, the Grow Your Own Produce workshop series. And even though um, they're they've closed the community room for the next two or three months, the workshop series is going to be able to continue online. And so I'm hoping that even though April's workshop has almost reached capacity of the community room, since it's not gonna be in person anyway, I'm hoping that I can release some more tickets. So if anyone's interested in learning what to do during the month of April in the garden, um, that workshop series will be a good thing to join in on. That's awesome. How does how does somebody um, join? Can find information about it on my website, which is permaculture rising. Cool. So
6: I'm sure everybody's feeling this way. This week is
5: sunny and beautiful
6: and I'm really ashamed to get out in the garden and start planting, but it also
5: snowed last weekend. Is it is it too early to start gardening? Well, it depends on what you want to plant. So it's a fine time to plant greens and some root crops, including carrots, beets, parsnips, turnips, and potatoes. I planted my tea seeds about a month ago. Um, by the end of the month, it's going to be the perfect time to plant brassica crops, which includes broccoli, cauliflower, cabbages, and collards. So the thing you need to know um, about when you can plant seeds is to get a sense of the minimum nighttime air and soil temperatures for the plants you want to grow. As we reach those thresholds of the nighttime air temperature and the nighttime soil temperature of the plants you want to grow, then you know that it's time to plant. So I believe that peas are between like 35 degrees and 42 degrees is the nighttime temperature um, for when you can plant those. And so, and so I planted mine a month ago, and they're about um, maybe an inch tall right now. And you can find uh, charts for what the uh, the thresholds are for temperatures through the Oregon State Extension, and then I also provide charts with the Grow Your Own Produce Workshop Series. So on days like today, many people get antsy to plant stuff, and um, as we get into April, it's really tricky because people find these me- sunny days so perfect for like getting out there and everyone wants to grow tomatoes but with the example of tomatoes it's important to wait until the nighttime temperature reaches at least 50 degrees at night for many of these warm season plants wow okay so we should look at Oregon State Extension or your
6: workshops to make sure we're planting for the nighttime temperatures
5: yeah, I mean it's usually coldest at like three o'clock in the morning or so. But you know, like I said, if people don't have the um, if people don't have those handouts yet or those guidelines, I mean you can find the ones from extension online. Um, but in general, right now you can totally plant peas, you can plant greens, and you can start getting those root crops in the ground. And then by the end of this month, it's a good time for the grass of the plant. Is there anything that we should be starting inside right now? Yeah, now's a great time to start those warm season crops inside. Um, so that's tomatoes and peppers and eggplant. Um, there's lots of other things that can be started too, but those are the most um, common ones. And the thing that people need to remember if they're wanting to start these indoors is that all of those plants came from a tropical environment. So they want uh, about 12 to 16 hours of light. They want their temperature thresholds need to be probably around 60 degrees. And so that's why it's important if you're going to grow healthy, um, vibrant starts that you have a nice light set up. I use heat masks underneath to maintain the soil temperature, and um, that's how you can do it to get a really nice um, start on the season.
6: That's great to know. Um, is there anything else we should be doing in the garden?
5: Well, getting your garden ready for planting, if it's not ready, is a great thing to do right now it's a good time to turn your compost piles if you don't have compost it's a good time to start composting Um, you can also order compost or manure from somewhere locally and you could get a soil test done to learn about what you need to do to make your soil perfect for the plants you want to grow and if you want to grow berry bushes or fruit trees now's the perfect time to put them in the ground if you currently have berry bushes or fruit trees now's a good time to make sure you have orchard mason bees out there for pollination And if you put stuff in the garden now, like with your annual plants, um, some of the shorter season things like radishes, arugula, spinach, and mustard greens, you should be able to start harvesting in about a month or so. So that's going to be really good to have fresh fruit, fresh fresh food from the garden in about a month.
6: Absolutely. Um, You know, like a lot of people are spending more time at home, so hopefully that means they have more time to get gardening and get ready. Um, So that's awesome to hear. Um, You know, uh, I'm really excited. You are about to start teaching a course about permaculture food
5: forests. Sounds really awesome. Tell us
6: what that um, course is all about and what a food
5: forest is. Well, a food forest is a cultivated orchard system that's designed to mimic the native forest by providing ecological functions as well as yields of tasty fruit, vegetables, and medicine. So I'm really excited about this course because I think – that food forests are really the most fun way that we can proactively respond to climate change. Perennial tree-based systems store carbon in the soil. They provide habitat for wildlife. They enhance the water storage capacity of our soils. And they provide exponential yields for your household and for your greater community. So the course is a five-week online course through Oregon State University, and it starts on March 30th. Um, it's the begin, It's actually like the first part of the course is what's starting because we were trying to do something where everyone was going to be able to design their own food forest in our course. And there's just so much information that we divided it into two parts. So the first part is the context of, like, learning about a food forest and keeping a plant journal and things like that. And then in the fall will be the second part of the course that people can sign up for um, that's going to be a practicum on designing your own food forest. So this first part is uh, self-paced, and um, it's five weeks of material. We have over 40 original videos. And, um, and then the second part is gonna have a lot more instructor feedback involved. And so people can sign up for just one part, or they can sign up for both.
6: That sounds really awesome. Um, so I, I don't know if you know, but I volunteer at a Community Orchard in my neighborhood that's a project of the Portland Fruit Tree Project and Village Gardens. And it is amazing to see, um, like, that incredible community resource in my neighborhood. It brings neighbors together to hang out. Um, We get together every month, and we do things, everything from weeding to winter pruning to harvesting. Um, And it's just like, you know, having an apple tree in your yard is great, but having an orchard full of diverse fruit trees in your neighborhood is even better. And I can imagine you know, the kind of food forest that you're talking about are even more diverse in all the kinds of food available. Um, and it's, it's so incredible to see um, how people are willing to share in the bounty of all the fruit, because it's so much, you know, one quince tree will make, like, 500 pounds of food. So I I love the idea that people get to design their own, but is there a way that they'll be able to, um, you know, work with the community to actually build a food forest, or is it more designed towards, you know, at people's
5: homes? No, it can be a home-based food forest. It can be um, a public food forest. We We actually have made different videos to feature different types of food forests. So we went to Malden Court Food Forest in southeast Portland, And we have a video about that. And I've worked with April on some of the other videos for the course. Um, That's April Jamison from Garden Ecology. She works with um, the community orchard there and does a lot of pruning work. Um, We also have visited the Beacon Hill Food Forest, which is super inspirational. That's a 10-year-old food forest project in Seattle um, that has a ton of abundance. And it actually came out of a permaculture course that I taught many years ago. And then we also visited, um, some production food forests. We visited a venue that's also a food forest in Olympia. Um, we visited arid climate food forests in Tucson, Arizona. We visited, um, food forests in the tropics in, um, Belize. And so the course is a, is, it covers food forests internationally and then provides the framework for people to be able to design a food forest on whatever scale suits them. Um, whether that's home scale or for the community in an urban space or in a rural neighborhood, um, or I mean on a rural, on rural property, um, wherever you might want to do your food forest, that's where the practicum will be able to guide you. That
6: sounds so beautiful! I can't wait to see those forests. So I know that you know uh, these spaces are wonderful places to gather and to learn together, but they're also doing a lot of work for us. Um, in you know, mitigating climate change and um, producing a bounty for us. Um, tell us a little bit more about the
5: climate impacts of food forest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, food, uh, when you grow trees in a perennial landscape setting, they're carbon sinks, and plants uptake carbon and hold it in their tissues. So that's a major um, ecological function that we're getting from growing these perennial landscapes. We also are facing a biodiversity crisis, and there's um, links to the loss of biodiversity and the reason why we're seeing this pandemic right now, actually, so food forests can also provide habitat for more wildlife. Right now, I've seen statistics, like there's 70% of the insect species are dying off, and so we really need to be able to stabilize the climate through the way that we tend to our landscape. We also have increased population and some economic challenges, and food forests are a great way to feed our communities locally, um, and also be able to work with a social situation where people have the opportunity to meet diverse groups of people and work together by stewarding the landscape. I thought it was really interesting that of all the food forests that we visited, they all were really welcoming of diverse groups of people and no one had an issue with someone coming and taking all the fruit. So a lot of food forests have surplus fruit that they can share with places of need. So that's uh, really awesome as well. Um, and then, you know, having perennial plants helps to buffer flooding. So if we get extreme rainfall, um, a food forest can help sink that rainfall into the soil, which is especially important in places like Portland where when we have – a Lot of storm water, it ends up um, causing combined sewer overflow and our sewers overflow into the river. So, the more that we can uptake our storm water in the tissues of plants, then we can reduce that impact on our infrastructure. Another thing that um, food forests can do is by having this um, soil that's able to hold a lot of water, then it also um, retains that moisture for longer periods into the summer so that um, we can be resistant against drought. And um, perennial food crops produce exponentially, so then there actually is also that buffer in times of, um, in terms of poor food security. Well, I'm excited. How would, how would somebody go about signing up for the course? Well, the best way to find it is to just go to my website, which is permaculturerising.com. You could also um, look up Permaculture Food Forest online course, and you'll probably get us first on your Google search. If anyone wants to see some sneak previews of some of the videos, you can look me up on YouTube. My name is Marisha Auerbach, and I have a YouTube channel. I actually have a couple different playlists off my YouTube channel, and um, one of them is called OSU Food Forest, which is all of the videos that I've been including for the course.
6: Very cool. Thank you so
5: much, Marisha. Thank you. I am at Two
4: Rivers Bookstore in St. John's with Christine Longmuir, the owner, and we're going to be talking today about um, her store, about cookbooks, and about cooking our way through the end times, even though it's really not that bad. It's not the end times. <laughs> Hi, Christine. Hi, Emily. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Um Tell me a little bit about your store. So uh, Two Rivers Bookstore started as a pop-up bookstore.
1: Um, I've been doing pop-ups in St. John's for about two years. Mm -hmm. My good friend, Annalisa Romano, let me pop up in her shoe store, Rome (laughs) Shoes. So we did books and shoes for a while. And then I partnered um, with Weird Sisters Yarn and we now have a real retail space.
4: In St. John's. And it's beautiful. Thank you. It's a wonderful space. Thank you. Um, so what uh what made you want to start a bookstore? What's the desire there?
1: You know, it's interesting because it totally um coincides with what we're talking about, you know, COVID nineteen. And I feel like a bookstore is a place that people come to for solace you know, if they want something happy, if they wanna know why something terrible has happened, like they come here for information. And um, I think books save lives. And so that's really, I wanted to be part of the community and open a bookstore.
4: That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so, I uh, I live in St. John's and I was wandering down the street and came in one time to look at cookbooks and you, you know, came up to me and you're like, oh, you like to cook? And we started talking and you said that you have a cookbook club based here in the bookstore, which I thought was awesome. Um, how does that work? How's the cookbook club work? So,
1: the cookbook club happens quarterly. Um, I generally pick the book mm-hmm. and then we all buy it. If you belong to the cookbook club, you get 10% off your cookbooks any time of the year. And everybody picks a recipe and we make them basically and have a potluck here. I also partner with 45th Parallel to do the wine pairings for whatever meal we're, we're making. So yes. um, I really try to involve all aspects of the community, not just my customers, but our my fellow business owners too as much as I can so I like a big party yeah
4: (laughs) so how do you go about picking the books that are in the book club
1: I try to pick things that are new um I do have some preferred publishers uh 10 speed press is one of them I used to work for them a long time ago but they do beautiful and amazing books and I know the recipe testing is surefire um that's one of the the qualities that I look for, that the recipes have been tested, because some of these books that are just coming off of Instagram, there's no real recipe testing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so recipe testing and pretty.
4: <laughs> um,
1: I actually myself have a cookbook problem. So, yeah, I, I read them like a novel. And then you keep them. And then most of the time <laughs> I keep them. Yeah. It's really hard to purge, but... Uh, I have been purging lately. Do you have any like all-time favorite cookbooks? Oh my god that's so hard. That's so hard. Um, I have an all-time favorite cookbook that I will never ever get rid of. It is the Crabtree and Evelyn cookbook and I don't remember (laughs) what year it was published but I will I will never get rid of it. Is it a favorite? I don't really cook out of it anymore Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's pretty. What era <laughs> like,
4: is it from?
1: Oh, God. I want to say mid-80s, okay. maybe. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Or is probably it, around then. Is it pretty? Like, there's, like,
4: paintings or drawings? Or... It's just
1: a beautiful layout. Pastels. Yeah. And, um, And actually, it was one of the first cookbooks that I purchased for myself that was um, planning a whole meal. Right. Like, so all the, like, here's what you have as the appetizer and the meal and then what to serve as your beverage um, so yeah that's my favorite nice. old old cookbook <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, and then how about new cookbooks do you have any favorite new ones
1: I have lots of favorites um, and that's really hard but um, one cookbook that I really love and that I try to sell to everybody it's called At Home in the Whole Food Kitchen by Amy Chaplin and it's kind of a health book but it's just basically how to eat well and why you should eat certain things and it's beautifully laid out it's not by 10 speed but it's still beautifully laid out um when i was and i like i said read them i was going through it and i was like god i want amy chaplin to be my best friend because it's just so lovely um the information is good it has great index um tells you why you should eat certain seeds uh yeah, I, I really, that's, that's probably my most favorite right now. It's not super new, but it's still new enough to be on my favorite list. And your
4: favorites. So um, you were saying earlier before we started recording that you actually just updated your website with some new recommendations. Can you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, we, um, I had a section on the website called I Have a Cookbook Problem, um, and I changed it to Cookbooks for Health and Comfort. Um, And there's a bunch of, there's books on there for eating for health. Um, uh, There's um, Healing with Whole Foods, At Home in the Whole Foods Kitchen, Nourished. And then just splurgy cookbooks because, you know, we have to splurge. So Jamie Oliver, thank you very much for the comfort. He has a cookbook called Comfort Food. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Best chili recipe ever. And then... um, there's a pie book, Sister Pie, that I love. It's also wonderful because it tells stories with each of the pie. Sister Pie is a um, bakery in Detroit, and they put together this awesome, beautiful pie book.
4: Oh, cool. I think there's a lot of people who are kind of figuring out how they can support people right now, even though your store is still open, which is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, lots of people aren't able to do the work that they normally do in the way they normally do it. So it's nice to kind of Think about those ways you can support people, um, and so I know you're you're still so open, but you're also doing some more um, like other ways to get books to people. Yeah,
1: we're so we have limited hours. We're going to be open from ten to five every day, Monday through Sunday. Um, we have curbside pickup. We have. Uh, what does that
4: mean? What's a curbside?
1: You call us, tell us what you want, and we'll run it out there to you. <laughs> so Pretty we'll much. That's it. Store. So you don't have to come in the store. Yeah. Um, we also will do local delivery to 97203 you know basically our zip code Mm -hmm. we're sanitizing everything we're you know call us if you want a suggestion we're happy to talk to you about what you might read Um, and then you can also go to our online store and See what we're offering. We have care packages up there now. Oh, that's cool. Um, Not just books, but knitting care packages for you, you knitters out there. Books and knitting go together. And we sanitize constantly, (laughs) as we all are, right? As we
2: all, Yeah. yeah.
4: Um. So you know, a lot of people are spending probably a lot more time at home than they normally would, and probably just like not going out to eat as much as you normally would, and. Um, we're recording this on Monday. The show will air on Wednesday. Who knows if even restaurants will be open, right? <laughs> um, but you know, at this point, like you could still go get a hamburger or some soup or whatever is comfort food to you, or a salad, whatever. Um, but I feel like probably a lot more people are going to be cooking at home right now. So as many, if you have any recommendations for. Books that people should look at that are not necessarily focused just on, like, healthy food, but, like, maybe for people who don't normally cook and, like, that yeah. sort of thing, yeah.
1: So the Cookbook Club book, even though I still have no idea how we're going to meet, <laughs> is called um, Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For. It's by Ella Reese Bridger. I'm not sure if I said that right. She's English. Rose Bridger. I don't know. <laughs> um, and she wrote this book. It it basically – she wrote herself out of depression while she was writing this. She wrote it while her partner, John Underwood, also a writer, uh, was dying. And these recipes each have a story about how this recipe brought her through a hard time. She talks about, uh, said, Charlie Champion of the World and the pie that saved her was the same pie in the book. And um, so they're very uplifting, they're also great it's a great layout, second quality that I require in a cookbook, <laughs> one-page recipes. Um, but just the stories, the heartfelt genuineness of yeah. how cooking moves us and how cooking is really love. It's a way, you know, to feel love and to give love. And that's what we need to give ourselves right now is love. Yeah. And if we can't meet... Then maybe we can all cook over the phone with each other and give it, you know, give a little love that
4: way. Totally. Is there a story in the book that you was particularly moving to you that you want um, to summarize? Oh wow, we, you just opened up the book, and there are this beautiful watercolor. Beautiful watercolors. <laughs>
1: um, there's the story that I was just telling you about about Charlie Pie, and I um, let me see. Can. I'm sorry, audience, that you have to wait for my bad <laughs> eyes to adjust. Um, is it the, the
4: Danny and the Champion?
3: The yes, that's a book? Danny,
1: yeah. Champion of the World, that's it. Um, pies, 104. Indexes are very helpful. I'll just, if it's okay, I'll just read you the part that I, I that, like, almost made me cry. Yeah. This is the pie from Danny, the Champion of the World. This is the pie that Dr. Spencer gives to Danny the morning after he has bravely driven to the woods, alone, at night, a little boy, to rescue his poacher dad from the man trap dug by the gamekeepers. This is a pie to celebrate adventure. A pie to celebrate a parent who is, let's not forget, Sparky. I can't read the last page without crying. I have a complicated relationship with parents and with Sparky. But I remember so very, very vividly the feeling of triumph that this pie tasted of. Danny, Champion of the World, is a triumphant book overall. Oh, it's beautiful. So they all have some kind of quality that it's just so heartfelt. Right. Um, so, yeah, that I love this
4: book. Sounds like a great book. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I
1: think it's a book for this kind of time, you know, mm-hmm. when... When maybe we can't sleep and we're staying up and baking or making chicken or making soup or all of those things that we do to comfort each other
4: yeah,
1: or ourselves. Cooking, the act of cooking for me is comforting. I've been stress cooking and stress cleaning.
4: (laughs) I always think of, um, um, I have a lot of very artistic and creative people in my life and sometimes they're like, you know why don't you do more art or do all these other things? I'm like, I do creative things. I think of, like, my cooking, and I do a lot of for teen. I think of that as a creative outlet. Absolutely. And when I you know, say that to people, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a whole different that's way of doing thing. something. Yeah, but I get the same kind of satisfaction of creating something. And it is, like, it's hard right now because you can't necessarily share that with anybody. Right. You <laughs> but, can share pictures on Instagram. <laughs> good idea. Excellent idea. Um. So if somebody wanted to get involved in the cookbook club, what should they do?
1: If they want to join the cookbook club, they can either call here um, or just email me, Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, at tworiversbooks.com.
4: Cool. And then I I know that, you know, maybe people don't, aren't online shopper people. They might not be buying stuff right now. Um, Are there any, like, Uh, e-cookbooks that you have ever seen that you like? I've actually never tried to use one.
1: I've never (laughs) seen any e-cookbooks. And actually, it's an interesting um, little piece of data that everybody thought when recipes went online, like with Epicurious, Mm -hmm. that cookbook sales would take a dive. But actually, cookbook sales rose. And they're still having a pretty steady... um, demand so oh
4: that's fascinating yeah is there any like particular style of cookbook that is no more? Is there, like, I think it's there that like, comfort thing yeah I just had an idea what if we started writing like young adult cookbooks and then we could corner both markets <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay like adventure drama love yeah Put yeah. a, a cookbook yeah yeah cool so
1: the cookbook club has about 10 people in it and we all meet here, like I said, but um, everybody's so enthusiastic that they're always looking for other reasons to cook. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saturday was Pie Day, 3.14 day, right. and the cookbook club, God bless them, or Divinity, yeah. how whatever, <laughs> um, they volunteered to make pies for Pie Day, which we would have just given away free pie, but we could, didn't right. give away free pie. but. And then for Valentine's Day, they did sweets for your sweet. I mean, it, it's just a great group of people. So it's just people who
4: really love to cook. Yeah, yeah,
1: and St. John's, right? They're just so good about their community and yeah, wanting just wanting to play nice with each other.
4: Cool. Thank you so much, Christine. Yeah. Um, do you want to just make sure our listeners know where you're located and your website and things? Yes,
1: thank you. Thank um, you. So Two Rivers Bookstore is in St. John's, 8836 North Lombard at the corner of North Chicago. You can reach us at 971-865-5941. If you want to call us about a book instead of going online, happy to talk to you. Um, or you can order books online at uh, tworiverbooks.com. And the two Spelled out. Two is spelled out. T W O R I V E R S B O O K S dot com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Emily.
2: And you are listening to K B O O Portland. The time is 856. Coming up at 9 a.m. is Fight the Empire with your host, Pear, who will be taking your call. So Get that phone ready. And uh, our air room number is 503-231-8187. Don't call now because guess what? Pear's not on on the line. And Pear's not in studio either because um, Pear's joining pretty much the rest of this uh, state where we're all being asked to stay inside. And Boo Community Radio is currently closed to all in-station volunteer and visitor activity for the next 30 days to to the COVID-19 pandemic effective March 13th. And while our airwaves are still live, all in-station classes and meetings are canceled for this month. KBU values the health and safety of our community and is taking operational precautions to do our part. More information on KBU's effort to combat COVID-19 can be found at kbu.fm slash COVID-19. So stay tuned because we are still your community connection. And just to extend upon that a little bit, your community connection, because even though our volunteers are not in station right now, while we are close to all in station volunteer activity, they are still producing shows remotely or they're calling in live because we know how much you value this radio station right now, especially while everyone is isolated. And I don't know about everybody else, but I am definitely feeling a need for community and For me, it is really great to be hearing everybody calling in, everybody hosting their shows, and still staying connected even if we can't see each other right now. So I hope you're doing well. I hope you're washing your hands. If you're not doing well, I hope you get well soon. I hope you're getting some rest, everybody. I know it's a stressful time, but let's try to stay connected. And maybe you stay connected through your community radio station. And this is Jenna Yokoyama, your interim station co-manager right now. So I'm going to put a a little uh, appeal out there as a station manager that, you know, if you can help support KBU right now, I know the economy is scary. But if you're one of those people who is privileged enough to have an extra dollar or two to give us during this time, we'd really appreciate your support. I know so many nonprofits are asking for your support right now. And if KABU is one of those nonprofits, you say, "Hey, this is a nonprofit worth supporting right now, worth keeping open because, well, we don't want to say that we're closing, but we're saying that you know we need we need listener support in order to keep these airwaves going because that's uh, our, our little skeletal crew of staff right now who is keeping the station running on a day to day basis. They, they got to get paid, and just like many other nonprofits, we are we're worried, and so. We know that not everybody can give but if you can give give online today at kbu.fm. show your support for our staff who is keeping it going despite our over 200 volunteers not being allowed in the building and then you show your support for those volunteers who are working so hard from home getting their shows together finding their their guests you know doing the dj thing from home because they know it's so important to still bring you the kind of programming that you're used to because you know what things that are familiar are comforting at least they are for me it's comforting to hear voices like pears coming up in just a minute so give online today if you can just we're asking for if you got a dollar give online today a dollar or two at kboo.fm and you'll find our little donate but- button up there and uh, show your support for community radio Alright, Fight the Empire, coming up in just a minute, but first, this from KBOO. KBOO Portland
4: Did you know that KBOO podcasts all our news and talk shows?
6: You can find the podcast on KBOO's website, kbu.fm, on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher.
4: Just search for your favorite show and hit subscribe to get all the latest episodes downloaded to your favorite device.
0: Or search for KBU on iTunes, Google Play to get all the KBU podcasts.